Now I ask, if you will, to please turn in your Bibles once again to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. Our focus will be on verses 5 through 17, but I would like to remind us of what we read last week in the first four verses. So we will begin reading at verse 1 of Colossians chapter 3. Now if you were not here last week because of a genuine providential hindrance, those first four verses of Colossians 3 are crucial, crucial to understanding Colossians, crucial to Paul's argument, crucial to the Christian life. And so I encourage you to get online and listen and to catch up if you did not hear uh, those verses read and expounded last Lord's Day. Now let's bow before the Lord in prayer before reading together. Our Father, it's all about submission of the heart. And no unbeliever can submit his heart unless by sovereign free grace you open the heart and grant the grace of faith and repentance. We pray for that today, that someone who is outside of Christ would find his or her heart opened by the Spirit and the Word applied to that heart. But Father, we continue as believers, true believers in Christ, to struggle with sin, and we will. We know we are completely accepted in Christ, justified, but our sanctification is progressive. And so we pray that the use of God's Word in our hearts by your Spirit this morning will help us in making progress toward the goal, and that you will as you have promised, give to your true saints persevering grace and help us to hate those things that are out of accord with your nature and to love those things which are in accord with your nature and help us to learn from this text what sins and how they should be killed and what blessings and virtues you have granted us in Christ and how they are to be fostered. Will you do this for us as we turn to your word And expound the text before us, knowing that the authority is in the text itself, because it is God's word without error. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now that was last week. We take it up here this week. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. J. Gresham Machen, that famed Presbyterian New Testament scholar, was fond of making this observation. Christianity is not a way of life. Christianity is not a way of life. Christianity is a way of life based upon a message. So if you take from Christianity the message, the message of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection then there is no Christian life. And the only way in which you and I can live the Christian life is by trusting the Christ proclaimed in the message that God has intervened into history to save us from our sins and by having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's extremely important that we say this from the outset. When Paul in this passage tells us how to live the Christian life, if you do not know Christ, you cannot live the Christian life. You need to come to faith in Christ because only those who truly know Christ can live out what Paul teaches us in this passage. So in the first four verses we saw last week, the Apostle Paul telling the believer where to set his mind and where to set our affections that we are to be heavenly minded, and now he is telling us, showing us, answering the question, how do I live this heavenly minded life? And he begins by saying, Christian, you must put off the old vices in verses 5 through 11. You must put off the old vices. That's the first thing. Put off the old vices. So he begins with a command in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and so forth. Put to death. Put to death, literally it should be translated, put to death your members that are upon the earth. And the verb that he uses here is an imperative that means to actively kill, to put to death. As if these sins were snakes in our hearts, we are to put them to death. The believer's bodily parts to which he refers, ta mela, referring to the the members, the bodily parts, is simply a way of saying that that sin will be shown through your hands and through your feet and through your mouth, through your bodily parts. It's not that the body itself is sinful, but that sin in the heart shows through the members of your body. And so we are to put to death 
your members that are upon the earth. John Owen the Puritan said it well, you had better be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so in chapter 3 verse 3 we noted that we died with Christ. Well how do we show that we have once for all died with Christ? We show it by slaying the old patterns that no longer have a place in your life. Because you have died in Christ, have been raised in Christ, that old way of living has no place in your heart. And so Paul lists five sins that can characterize the old way of life that Christians must put to death. And the fact that he's writing to believers and saying you must put them to death means that we are still tempted toward those old dark ways. And so you will see that the Apostle Paul lists a series of sins and he begins with sexual sin. He says in verse 5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Let's go through the list. First he says, put to death porneia, from which we derive our term pornography, sexual immorality. This includes fornication and adultery. Now our culture says, this preacher is in the dark ages, he doesn't know what he's talking about, uh, let's just, just get rid of those old taboos. But Paul the Apostle by divine inspiration says this pagan approach to sexuality has no place in the Christian life. Kill it. Then he moves on and he uses another word, akatharsion, which is impurity or moral corruption or whatever is unclean. Kill it. Passion. Now that doesn't mean passion for good things. Uh, Again, it's a word that has to do with sexual impurity. It's a word that essentially means eroticism. It's used by Paul that way in Romans 1.26. And if you'll keep your finger here, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's begin reading at verse 3. Look for this word passion, the same word. And what he says about sexual immorality in the Christian life in general. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and following. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay, this is God's will for you, your growth in grace, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion, that's the word, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That's what Paul means back here in Colossians when in the list he says passion, pathos, eroticism. Then he goes on to say evil desire. Again in this context almost certainly meaning sexual desire. And notice that he says covetousness which is idolatry. Again in this context probably probably meaning the greed for sexual desire that can consume the life. 
The Apostle used it that way in the passage we just read in 1 Thessalonians 4, the same verb for coveting a brother's wife. In Exodus 20, God says in His law, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And Paul may be referencing that to encapsulate what he means by covetousness in this passage. Now this is very plain, isn't it? There's nothing esoteric here. It's very clear. This is God's Word. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, if you disregard this, you're not disregarding man but God. So this preacher is simply saying, this is what the text says, and we must submit our hearts to it. Young people, let me especially say to you, the characteristic of pagan life in the ancient world was sexual immorality. We now live in a thoroughly pagan culture, and the characteristic of pagan life in our culture seems again to be sexual immorality. Do not demean your body and your soul that were purchased by Jesus Christ through His own shed blood by entering into sexual immorality. Do not demean the body and the soul of someone else by sexual immorality. So young people, I say this to you, but to all of us, sex is God's good gift for a man and woman in the bonds of holy matrimony. In any other place, any other location, in any other setting, it is sin. And sexual sin will rot out your soul and often rot out your body as well. And you should, you should not care if you are the only young person on the face of the globe to hold to God's biblical standard, and you should determine within your heart, I will not be pressured by the world standard and its laughter of purity. I will honor the Lord now and always. Paul then reminds them of the new life that is ours in Christ when he says in verses 6 and 7, on account of these things that he's been listing, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living. So the Apostle Paul says it's on account of these things the wrath of God is coming. To put it to you this way, These are the things that characterize the lives of those who will be damned when Jesus comes again. Do you want to live that way? Do you want that to characterize your heart and your bodily parts? Certainly not. But these are the things that will characterize those who are outside of Christ. And in verse 7 when he says in these two in these you once walked the point is of course this was the common fare in the ancient pagan world but Paul's point is that we believers have been delivered from God's coming wrath and therefore we should kill those movements towards sin that are inconsistent with the new life that we have in Christ. These are thoughts and actions that once characterized your life, but no longer. And in these we once walked, but our manner of life is different now because of Christ. Don't you remember what he said in chapter 1 and verses 12 and following? When he says that we have been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in life, 
He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light means, therefore, my life is going to be lived differently. Now the Apostle Paul is not only concerned with that predominant sexual sin of the pagan world. It's very interesting Matthew Arnold has these lines on that hard pagan world disgust and secret loathing fell deep weariness and sated lust made human life a hell. That's paganism. But he's also concerned with other virtues and characteristics and qualities that should characterize the Christian life and those things that should not. So he gives a second list beginning here in verse 8. Will you look at it? But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And he goes on. So let's look at the list. He says to us Christians, we are to put away, put them all away. Anger and wrath which come, of course, from the heart. You remember what we read in the book of James, chapter 1, 19 and following. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls." So when he says anger and wrath, Paul is talking about unrighteous outbursts of anger. Someone has suggested that anger is the settled state of the heart, but wrath is the outburst of anger that is shown from the heart. Next he says, you are to kill, put away malice, which is ill will, easily related to anger and to wrath. Are you just determined to harm someone? That's malice taking delight in being vicious. And then he adds slander and obscene talk. Slander, blasphemeon, means to degrade someone, to revile, to defame, harmful speech. This shouldn't characterize God's people. And then obscene talk, Astrologion, obscene speech, dirty talk, suggestive language has no place in the Christian life. Lightfoot suggests that these two things belong together and he translates it foul-mouthed abuse. Foul-mouthed abuse. Abuse with the tongue. Any husband doing that to his wife at home Any wife doing that to her husband at home? And young people, it is not consistent with your Christian profession to pick up suggestive, offensive, in-your-face language. It's all out there in the culture, but it has no place in the Christian life. Keep your finger here, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Remember, Ephesians is the twin epistle, and there are many themes that are parallel, especially in these chapters, chapters 5 of Ephesians, chapter 3 in Colossians. And in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, Paul said it this way, 
Therefore, Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, therefore do not associate with them. Now coming back to Colossians 3, note that he also adds in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And I do not know this, but it's certainly true. I don't know if Paul is thinking this way, but it's certainly true that when sexual immorality comes into the life of a person, a lot of lying and dishonesty comes with it. Covering up, hiding, not telling the truth. Paul says, don't lie to one another. God himself is truth, isn't he? Right? Isn't he? Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, didn't he? And that's the case then. Live in light of that truth. Speak the truth. Anyone here, you're just a liar. You develop the habit of lying. You're not telling the truth to your parents. Some of you don't know how to tell the truth to yourself. And what is the reason that these practices must be put aside? Well, we've died in Christ, we're alive in Christ. But also, he says in verse 10 of Colossians 3, we've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The new man has been put on. We are new men and women in Christ. We read this morning, Pastor McDonald, from Genesis 1 of the creation of Adam. Man was created in integrity. He was upright and created in the image of God. But he fell into sin and the image has been incredibly marred, indeed lost. And now it has to be restored. What is happening in your life as a Christian is that the Holy Spirit is restoring the image that was lost in the fall, that was destroyed in the fall. That's what is happening. So Paul says, live as those who are new men and women in Christ. As A.T. Robertson put it, piety is not a mask to put on or off at will. The life in Christ goes into the web and woof of the heart itself. Being new in Christ means that for us Christians, the old distinctions that separated us have been done away. So that those distinctions having been done away, there is this body of Christ, and we are growing in grace together. And we are being conformed to the image of Christ together. And so he puts it this way in verse 11. Here, that is to say where this image is found, here... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. 
nationality, race, Greek and Jew, do either of these things make us right with God? No. So why should they divide us? Our religious backgrounds before coming to know Jesus, circumcision, uncircumcision, do we not all now have in Christ the same privileges? The Greco-Roman point of view, barbarian and Scythian, should cultural distinctions hamper our fellowship with Christ? You know, a barbarian was originally someone who did not speak Greek. That was the initial meaning, but it came to mean those who were just not civilized. And he includes Scythian here because Scythian, the Scythians were thought to be on the absolute bottom of the rung of what it meant to be a barbarian. I actually read a quotation from Herodotus recently about Scythians that I will not bring into the pulpit. Let me tell you, Isis seems to pale in comparison to the history of the Scythians, and that's saying a lot. Now, these are coming to faith in Jesus. Social distinctions, slave and free, there were millions of slaves in the ancient world. We do not even know how many. Again, do not all Christians have the same inheritance? So he says this, Christ is all and in all. Whatever earthly distinctions may be in Christ, he now indwells all of his people. And the point that Paul seems to be making is simply this, no matter who you are, from what background you have come, from what sins you have been saved... God has brought us all together from all of these different walks and backgrounds so that we are one body and you are not alone in learning to kill sin and walk righteously. We are doing this thing together and God is doing a marvelous thing. He is bringing together a new race of humanity under the headship of Christ and we are together fighting the good fight of faith and moving on to our celestial home We are new in Christ. You are not alone. We are new in Christ together. Now that's what he says, kill. That's what he says, put off. And I hope that you'll take it seriously. But the Apostle Paul is never content to simply say, stop doing something. He wants it replaced with the right thing. And so the second thing is, put on new virtues. Put on new virtues. And we find them in verses 12 through 15. Now in verse 12 you'll notice he begins with another command. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and so forth. It's a command. And then he lists the virtues. We are to live according to our new identity in Christ. We are to put on, as McLaren put it, the garments of the renewed soul. So think of these virtues as given to you by the Spirit of God, and you're called to put them on just as you put on your clothing. What are those virtues? Well, follow the list. Beginning here in verse 12. The first is compassion. That's how you think upon someone and respond to someone who is in need. Bowels of mercy, the King James put it, because you see, that really reflects the Greek that speaks of splachna, which is the internal organs of the body. That's where we feel the affections. Today we say the heart. Are you tender? Are you sympathetic? That's the question. Kindness. Several commentators call that sweetness of disposition. And as I was thinking about this, a lot of people in our congregation came to my mind as excelling in sweetness of disposition and kindness. 
humility. What do you have that you did not receive? If you have beauty, from whom did it come? If you have intelligence, from whom did it come? If you have special gifts, from whom did it come? If you're in the United States rather than living in Iran, from whom did that come? What do you have that you did not receive? The Son of God condescended to come and to save you from your sins. What right do we have to walk in pride? And in the ancient world, by the way, humility was considered a vice, not a virtue. But it's Jesus Christ who comes and says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. He must increase, I must decrease. As Packer puts it, Christians grow greater by getting smaller. Meekness, gentle, not harsh, not rude. Patience, which means long-suffering, not vengeful. And then he says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So we not only bear with one another, but we forgive one another. Do you have a forgiving spirit? Or do you harbor resentment? What did the Lord Jesus do for you on the cross? What if the Lord had said, I'm harboring resentment against this person, and I have a right to be offended, and therefore I'm not going to die for him? Where would you be? Did he have a right to be offended? You bet. But he gave himself on the cross and sacrificed himself. He did have the right to be offended, but in love he died for our sins. Can we not therefore learn to forgive one another if God did this for us? Where is it that you need to apply this in your life, in your home, in your relationships? And above all, he says, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all, because this is of supreme importance, you put on love an attitude of self-sacrifice. For when that is done, harmony ensues. And all of these things we put on like articles of clothing and love is the belt that holds it all together. And in verse 15 he speaks of peace and gratitude. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. As Lightfoot puts it, wherever there is a conflict of motives or impulses or reasons the peace of Christ must step in and decide which is to prevail. Forget yourselves in thanksgiving toward God. These are the things that I am called and you are called by God himself in his word to put on like clothing and to wear in my Christian life. Well, where will we find the power for this? I'm glad you asked that question. Because in verses 16 through 17 we find the power and the evidence of this. The power for the new life. Now, had we time, I would take you to Ephesians 5 again, and I would show you all the parallels between Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. But here's the salient point. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. In Colossians 3, in the same flow of argument, he substitutes that for be filled with the Spirit. He substitutes for that. Let the word of Christ indwell you richly. The conclusion is clear. You are filled with the Spirit as you saturate your minds with Scripture and obey its precepts in the heart. 
The Spirit-led person is the person guided by the Bible. So, being filled with the Spirit is much more simple and a whole lot more profound than most people think. It has nothing to do with speaking in tongues or prophesying or anything like that. Would you be filled with the Spirit? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Love the preaching of the Word. Love to read it. Love to study it. Love to get it weighed down deep in your heart. Love to live it out in your home, in your workplace, in your relationships. That's the Spirit-filled person. It's simple but profound. The marks of a Christian in whom the Word dwells richly or who is filled with the Spirit, the marks are that we have a singing and a grateful heart. Where he says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When this is done, we teach one another and admonish one another with all wisdom, which is one of the many reasons that our hymns should be content filled. We are to sing the psalms. We've sung two psalms this morning, did you know? The first two hymns were psalms. We are to sing hymns. We have examples of hymns. In Colossians 1, 15 through 20, it was almost certainly an ancient hymn. Colossians 2, that refers to the condescension of our Savior and His exaltation, that was a hymn. John chapter 1, the prologue to John's Gospel, was probably an ancient hymn, which shows us how substantive our hymns should be. And then it says spiritual songs, which has nothing to do with choruses. It's a general word for a song accompanied or unaccompanied dealing with praise or many themes. It's the word from which we derive our term ode. That should characterize your life. We sing with thanksgiving, verse 16 says, How else? When I sing I acknowledge God to be God, and when I sing I cannot help but be thankful as I confess that I who from the crown of my head to the sole of my foot am unsound, have been saved by Christ. So even those of us here who cannot sing can sing because our hearts are filled with joy. And then Paul says in verse 17, look at it, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So you go back through the list. Can I be involved in sexual immorality or impurity or holding in my heart and in my mind constant filthy thoughts and do this in the name of Jesus? Can I be an angry, wrathful, malicious, slanderous, obscene, talking person? In the name of Jesus? Can I be a liar in the name of Jesus? This thing of truth telling, I think, is far, far more deep than most of us think, and it always backfires. Truth will out. I read somewhere of a man that wanted to impress his pastor, so he um, brought him into his shop, and he said, I want to give you something really nice, Pastor. And so he gave him this really expensive cut glass, had a really high price tag on it. 
And the pastor said, no, no, I can't take that. I don't want anything from you. You've got to take something, pastor, so go ahead, take this. No, I don't want this. I, I, I'll take this cheaper thing over here. And the man just about passed out because he had switched the tags before the pastor came in. <laughs> and he had put the expensive tag on the inexpensive item. The inexpensive tag on the expensive item was giving the pastor the expensive item with the inexpensive tag. And the pastor said, no, I want the inexpensive item. And he took the expensive one. <laughs> it always happens that way, doesn't it? You can't have a life that's filled with lies and cheating It's disaster for a home, disaster for a marriage, disaster for a family, disaster for your life, disaster for the church. We are people who should live in the light. And that's what I want for my life. Do you want that for yours? So verse 17 is extremely important. A very, very important item to grasp in the new life we are called to live for Christ. I'm thinking of doing something. Well, here's the litmus test. With the true Christ before me and within me, understanding the biblical Christ, can I do this thing in Jesus' name? And with a heart filled with continual thanksgiving, can I do this thing? Can I write that thing on social media? In Jesus' name and with a thankful heart. Can I post that picture in Jesus' name and with a thankful heart? Can I encourage that relationship? Can I take that course of action? Can I harbor that thought? Well, here is the test. Can I do it in Jesus' name and with thanksgiving to God? So I want what I want, no matter what God says is not the way to live the Christian life. So let me bring it to conclusion with this in our minds. This text, verse 17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Which means, Jesus bought me. Now, everything I'm going to say applies to me, but let me say it to you. Jesus bought you. Jesus owns you. Jesus should be exalted in your heart. Jesus should be exalted in your life. Jesus should be exalted in your decisions, in your actions, in your attitude in your home, in your relationships, on your Facebook, in your tweets, in personal remarks, in school, universally, in all things, Jesus is to be exalted in your life. That's the goal. So let me speak specifically to the young people here today who have great aspirations. Some of you aspire to be married and have families. Wonderful. Some of you want to be mechanics and plumbers and electricians. That's a great aspiration. Someone here wants to be a scientist or a doctor or a lawyer or maybe a minister of the gospel. Aspire for it. Go for it. That's great. These are wonderful aspirations. But they are all meaningless if they're not done in Jesus' name and with thanksgiving in your heart to God. 
So here's the challenge that I want to put before you today, young person. Will you make the great aspiration of your life, I mean the aspiration of your life that determines all others, will you become an enthusiast for living to the glory of God? Will you become an enthusiast for living for Jesus? Won't you become an enthusiast for living a consistent Christian life? And if there's one young person here this morning, 12 years old, 10 years old, 16 years old, 18 years old, that will say, this morning, by the grace of God, I really will determine in my heart that even though I know it will, I will struggle and I will have my failures, nonetheless, the overriding domination of my heart is that I will be an enthusiast in my Christian living for Jesus Christ then this sermon will have been worth it all. So, again, Paul's really plain. There's nothing difficult here, nothing esoteric here, nothing that, that you cannot understand here. You can't walk away and say, I don't understand what Paul meant, so I'm not going to live it out. Everybody understands it. The question is your heart, your heart, your heart, your heart. And when he says, let the word of Christ grow in you, dwell in you richly, it's always the issue of submission, isn't it? It goes all the way back to Eden, doesn't it? Has God really said? Well, yes, he has said it. He has said it right here for me. He has said it right here for you. God really has spoken. And he loves you so much he sent his son to die for you and loves you so much that he wants you to live a pure and godly life that glorifies his son. And most of all, he loves his son so much that he wants that from us. So this is how you kill sin. You don't feed it, you starve it, you kill it, and you replace it with a heart that is filled with God's word. And the result, the result will be a life that exalts Jesus Christ, a life that proclaims, may Jesus Christ be praised. Is that what you want in your life? That's our call from this text. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.